Welcome back to the Grand Valley Church Podcast, a community of faith in Brandon, Manitoba. We hope this message helps you meet Jesus and grow in faith. Have you ever had a friend move away? Or maybe you were the friend who moved away from the community and and there's always these tearful goodbyes when you promise to each other saying, you know, I'm not going to be here, but but our relationship isn't going to change. And even though social media helps us stay in contact with one another and, and we can, you know, like and comment on each other's pictures and, you know, you know what's going on in their lives from what they post online, but it's not the same. Today we're starting a new sermon series called Invisible God because what happened at Easter is that Jesus, who had walked and lived with his disciples for three years, now after the resurrection became invisible. And so his disciples had to figure out how do we relate to Jesus now that he's not physically here with us every day. They aren't traveling from town to town anymore with him. And so that's what we're venturing in and kind of the lens that we're looking at Easter through today. But it's hard to keep a friendship when you can't see each other on a regular basis. And so we're going to dive into this topic of how do we have a relationship with Jesus? How do we recognize and be in in a connection and be connected to God when, you know, Jesus isn't physically here on this earth anymore? We can see the effects he has. We can see the way he works in our lives and the works, how he works in the lives of others around us but we don't get to see him face to face the way his disciples did. But I want to take us back in the story for a moment first and say, imagine for a moment if you could have been one of the disciples, if you could have spent three years of your life walking with him, traveling with him, hearing every time he taught, you know, hearing him speak firsthand, seeing the miracles that he did, the healings, the times when he he completely transformed people's lives with just a word. How incredible and how amazing would that be? In fact, over those three years, the disciples start seeing the bigger picture and they start seeing that Jesus really is the Messiah. He really is this promised one who has been sent by God to bring out a new era of God's kingdom being real, that the whole world is changing. And there's this sense that the disciples were finally starting to get after the three years of saying, this is the moment when the whole world is going to change. And all of them have these preconceived notions of what the Messiah is going to do. Some people thought that he would come and he would raise up an army and he would overthrow Rome because Rome was oppressing the whole Mediterranean basin was controlled by Rome. And so some people thought that the Messiah would come with a sword and would take over. Some thought that the Messiah would come and he would reform the whole temple system. He would be a new high priest that would completely transform the temple and help people to have a relationship with God again. But the one thing that no one expected of the Messiah is no one expected that the Messiah would die. And Jesus told his closest friends that he would be killed, but they either didn't understand or they chose not to believe him. No matter how many times Jesus tried to keep telling them, you know, I'm going to be killed. My time, I'm going to be raised up. I'm going to be buried. He would give them these hints and he would tell them about it. But they didn't get it. Because they thought, how could the Messiah, how could this promised one be killed? And so the unthinkable happens, and Jesus is arrested. And the religious leaders have this mock trial that is so full of inaccuracies and problems, they can't even come up with what the charge is that they want to put against Jesus for why he should be crucified. And so the next morning, the day before the Passover, they take 
Jesus to Pilate, who's the Roman governor. He's the guy who's been placed here, and he has two responsibilities. Keep the peace and keep the tax money going to Rome. That's all he's supposed to do. Keep the peace, keep the tax money flowing. And so the religious leaders get the crowd so worked up, and Pilate realizes my only option in front of me is I can kill this innocent man. Because Pilate sees nothing wrong with what he's done. Say, we can kill this innocent man, or I'm going to have a riot on my hands, and my job and possibly his life is on the line. And so Pilate bows to the pressure of the religious leaders and has Jesus crucified on a cross, an agonizing, horrible death reserved for the people that Rome wanted to make a statement out of their death to say, look, this is what happens when you mess with Rome. And so Jesus is crucified. And he's buried and the disciples scatter. Even Peter, who promised Jesus just hours before the arrest, I will never betray you, I will never leave you, I will be with you till the bitter end. Even before Jesus is crucified, Peter follows along and he denies Jesus three times and says, I've never known the man, I've never known the man, I've never known the man. The closest friends that Jesus had abandoned him because they couldn't comprehend what was going on. Now, on Good Friday, we recognize that. We remember the sacrifice that Jesus made, that the penalty, that everything that separated us from God has been overcome and removed. And then today, we get to celebrate that on the third day, Jesus rose from the grave, that he demonstrated his power over everything. But even his closest friends did not expect it. And see, we have the benefit of hindsight. We all know the story, or we know the pieces of it. We know that, well, Jesus died, and then he rose again. But for them, I just want to ask you to try something. Let's, let's take a moment, and let's just set aside what we know of the resurrection, and let's try to see this from the perspective of his closest friends. And so Luke 24 One to three tells us this, but very early on the Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared and they found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. So they went in, but they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, Luke includes this detail of saying they took the spices they had prepared because it tells us something. See, a Jewish burial custom was that in a tomb in the center, there would be a stone slab. And when someone died, they would immediately be washed and wrapped in cloth and brought and placed in the tomb. And over the next year, the family would keep coming back to the tomb and they would anoint the body with spices and perfumes for a very practical reason, to mask the odor of decay. Because this is an arid, dry climate, bodies decay quickly. And so for a year, the body of the deceased would lay on this stone slab and they would keep coming back and they would put, you know, they would mask the smell of the decaying flesh. And after a year, when all that was left was the bones and the cloth, they would gather the bones and they would put them in a box and they would carve out a shelf in the side of the tomb and they would place that box of bones on the shelf in the tomb and the tomb would be ready for the next member of the family who would die. So when the women go to the tomb, even though it was sealed, they didn't know how they were going to get in, but they knew they had to go because this was part of their grieving process for the loss of their friend. They were going to go to prepare his body to, be, to reach its final barrier, burial on the shelf. But they didn't find the body. They were expecting a body, but they didn't find one. And so as they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them, clothed in dazzling robes. The women were terrified and bowed with their faces to the ground. And then the men asked, Why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? 
He isn't here. He's risen from the dead. Remember what he told you back in Galilee. Two angels have to come as messengers from God to remind them, don't you realize Jesus told you this would happen? But they couldn't grasp it. And so the women rushed back to the tomb to tell his 11 disciples and everyone else what had happened. But the story sounded like nonsense to the men, so they didn't believe it. The 11 remaining disciples, I mean, we need, we need to look at this and be like, come on, guys, don't you get it? He told you he had power over life and death. He told you that he was making a way. He told you he would do this. But Peter, he at least gets a little bit of it. Peter jumped up and ran to the tomb to look. He actually went to verify it. Stooping, he peered in and saw the empty linen wrappings. Then he went home again, wondering what had happened. They were so overcome with grief, with sorrow over their Lord and Savior who all their hopes had been placed on. And they felt like everything had been lost. Everything had been ruined. That everything Jesus had taught about, well, maybe, maybe, it, maybe it wasn't true. I mean, the doubt they were feeling was intense. And we sometimes, we skip too quickly from Good Friday to Easter Sunday. And we miss this time of deep mourning and sorrow and questioning and wondering and the the tension that would be building within them of saying, what's going to happen next? What now? We've given three years of our life to this guy. What next? And so then as the disciples were gathered, Jesus himself suddenly appears in the room standing there among them. And he says, peace be with you, Jesus said. But the whole group was startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. When Jesus appears to them, they're terrified at first. And we know now with hindsight, we know like the disciple Thomas, who he wasn't in the room at this moment. And he said, when they came and they told Thomas, said, yeah, Jesus has risen from the grave. Remember what he said he would do? He actually pulled it off. He did it. And Thomas says, no, I I won't believe it until I touch the wounds in his hands or I feel the wound in his side where the centurion stabbed him with a spear. Then later when Jesus appears to Thomas, he tells Thomas, come, touch my hands, touch my side. There is no chastising in what Jesus said to Thomas. Jesus met each of his followers in exactly the way that they needed to come to grips with the reality that Jesus rose from the grave. We sometimes look at guys like Peter and Thomas and we think, you know, if I was there, you know, I would have got it. I would have understood it. But likely we wouldn't. And so we need to have a little piece of grace towards them of saying, like, this is so utterly out of, out of what's reality, out of what we think is real. The empty tomb was a surprise because no one expected that Jesus would be right when he predicted his own death and his own resurrection. See, if someone today says, you know, predicts their death, we kind of would be like, okay, yeah, wait and see, prove it. You know, that would be our, you know, pragmatic Canadian, somewhat polite, but like, okay, prove it. But Jesus, he predicted his death, even though all their hopes rided on him staying alive. But it boggles my mind to say that if someone predicts their death and then pulls it off, how crazy is that? That has to shape our understanding of reality. Because resurrection of the dead, to them, they're saying, well, this isn't possible. 
And they, they, you know, I don't know whether they remembered or they thought it was only because Jesus was alive, because Jesus made his friend Lazarus rise from the dead. They went to the tomb where Lazarus was buried, and, and Jesus said, no, he's just asleep, called him out. And Lazarus came out of the tomb because Jesus healed and did a miracle. And this was just, you know, a month or so before Jesus' own death and resurrection. And even then, the disciples still didn't believe that Jesus had the authority and the power from the Holy Spirit to do what he did. In fact, what I find hilarious and a little kind of disappointing at the same time is the only people in the whole passion narrative, the only people in the, the, the times the Gospels talk about Jesus' death and resurrection, the only people that actually had an inkling that Jesus might come back weren't his followers. It was the people who had him executed. The religious leaders, after Jesus was buried, went to Pilate And they said to Pilate, you know, this guy claimed he would rise from the dead. So they weren't even thinking he could. They were just saying he claimed he could rise from the dead. And so they asked Pilate and they said, can you seal the tomb and can you put your Roman guards in front of the tomb to guard it so that the disciples can't steal the body? Well, what happens is when Jesus rises from the dead and there's an earthquake and the stone rolls away and Jesus comes out, the guards faint and they run off. Now, to a Roman centurion, to desert your post, to leave command, you know, it wasn't like, you know, you might get orders or you might get to, you know, you get some discipline now in the military. In the Roman world, in their military, if you deserted your post, the moment you were found by any Roman soldier, you were executed. You deserted your post, you die, period. So these guards that Pilate put by the tomb when they fled the tomb, they knew that they were going to be dead. But so they, instead of going back to their commanding officer, they went to the religious leaders, the ones that had Jesus killed. And a meeting of the elders was called, and they decided to give the soldiers a large bribe. And they told the soldiers, you must say Jesus' disciples came during the night while they were sleeping, and they stole his body. All right, I believe this. You know, 11 fishermen overpowered Roman centurions and rolled away the giant stone and stole the body. That's what, that's what you're going to have them say. So this must have been a giant bribe for these soldiers to admit, you know, a group of fishermen overpowered us. You know, no soldier's going to admit to that. But here's the thing. Over time, there's been a lot of kind of theories that have been put forward of like, well, how could Jesus have, how, how could the tomb have been empty? But like, if resurrection is too much for us to handle, how could the tomb have been empty? And this is the first theory that always comes up. Well, the disciples stole the body. And then they just pointed to the empty tomb to justify what they would do going forward. But if the disciples had stolen Jesus' body, they would not have been willing to die for their faith. Because out of the 11 remaining disciples, and later on they added 12 back in, out of the 11 disciples, only one of them got to die of natural causes. John was the only one who died of old age. All the rest of them, Even the guy they added to the disciples afterwards were all executed and martyred for their faith. And they were all given opportunities and and told, you could renounce that you know Jesus. You could renounce that Jesus is the Son of God. You could renounce that he was the Messiah. You could renounce that he rose from the grave. And we won't kill you. But every one of them chose death over rejecting Jesus. If they had stolen the body, if it was a lie, there is not a chance that they would have withstood and been willing to die for it. Because if it's a lie, wouldn't they, why wouldn't they have just given it up? 
And if the disciples were just lying about it, of saying, no, no, the body was in the tomb, but it was still guarded by the Roman soldiers, and if, if they say, well, the disciples were just lying about the whole thing, the religious leaders could have just opened the tomb and showed off and said, look, there's the body on the slab decaying away. He's not alive. And if the religious leaders had done that, if, and certainly they would have if they had the body, none of us would be here today. The church would not have survived. The church would not have grown. It would have just been barely a blip in history. In fact, the resurrection of Jesus changes the entire course of human history for the last 2,000 years have been profoundly shaped and shifted because of the resurrection. It is the most single pivotal event in all of human history combined. Because if the religious leaders could have said, look, there's his body. He didn't rise from the grave. He has no power. The church wouldn't be here. The church wouldn't have survived the persecution they were under in the first 300 years. But the resurrection demonstrates something. And the resurrection became this catalyst for the growth of the church. It wasn't about Jesus' teachings. It was actually about the resurrection itself because the resurrection itself proves something that God is doing. And the first of which is the resurrection demonstrates that Jesus can be trusted to follow through on his promises. If he told his disciples, I'll be killed, three days later I'll rise from the grave, and then he pulls it off. That is about the biggest, most giant promise you could ever make. And he demonstrated that he fulfilled it. He rose from the grave. So every other promise that Jesus made, the promises about God accepting us, about God loving us, the promises of sending the Holy Spirit to us, the promises that we would do greater things, that we would be able to be his witnesses throughout the world, every one of those promises, it's a smaller promise than the resurrection. That's an easy promise for Jesus to fulfill. The resurrection demonstrates that every time Jesus made a promise in Scripture, we can bank on that. That is more solid than any other promise that anyone can make to us. The promises of Jesus are secure. And next, the resurrection demonstrates something even bigger than that, too, of saying that the resurrection demonstrates that God has power over life and death. Death is not the end. You know, everyone makes a joke, you know, two things are permanent in life, death and taxes. Well, death isn't permanent. Not for those who follow Jesus. Death is not the end because death is subservient to Christ. Christ has power over everything, over every affliction, over everything we face, even over death itself. We sang about that, death could not hold you. You know, we sing about how Jesus cheated death because his power is so great. Life always wins over death. Life always wins and takes over. See, sometimes we put limits on what we think God can do because we can't comprehend. Our minds are limited. We can't comprehend the limitless power of who God is. We sometimes struggle to understand just what God is able to do because we think, no, no, he can't do that. Well, yes, he can. He has the power and he boggles our minds and makes us wrestle with this sometimes when Jesus shows up and, in our lives and when the Holy Spirit moves and does things that we cannot explain by any other nature. You know, we sometimes, we take the stance of dismissing it and saying, well, maybe it didn't happen that way because our minds can't wrap around the infinite nature of who God is. But the resurrection proves that God is limitless. 
And the next piece that the resurrection demonstrates is that God's love and his desire to have a vibrant and alive relationship with us is overwhelming. Because the truth is that from a theological perspective, everything that Jesus needed to do was finished on Good Friday. Everything that Jesus came to do to make a way open between us and God was done at the moment of his death. And we know this because in Jerusalem there was the temple, and the temple was a, was a physical representation of God being with his people. You know, the temple didn't contain God, but it was the image and the representation and the symbol that God was with his people. And inside the temple there was deeper and deeper rooms. They were nested within each other, and at the very center was the place that was called the most holy place. And, and the highest of the high priests could only enter that room once per year after this month-long ritual of preparing themselves to step into the place that was the symbol of God's presence with his people. And inside this area was where they, they say that the Ark of the Covenant that the Israelites carried, you know, made during their time in the desert and carried into the Promised Land, that's where the Ark of the Covenant rested. And if you're an uh, Indiana Jones fan, fan, you know what happens when the Ark of the Covenant gets opened, right? There's no real biblical evidence, but there's no evidence that that's not what happened either, so who knows? But in this most holy place, and, and this is the part that, that boggles my mind. I think it's just kind of hilarious. They would tie a rope around the priest's ankle. And so the priest would enter this room. And if he didn't come out at the time he was supposed to come out, they figured, okay, he got struck dead by God's glory. And they had a rope on his ankle so they could pull his dead body out so they didn't leave a body in the most holy place. <laughs> but the moment that Jesus died, the moment that he let out his last breath, the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. The barrier that separated the most holy place from the rest of the temple was ripped in half from top to bottom. And the Greek word used in that is the same word used when Jesus was baptized and they say the heavens tore open and it is a torn open in a way that can never be mended and closed again. This is permanently open. The temple curtain tears in two and can never be closed God has done everything for us to be in a relationship with him. And that was completed on Good Friday. So why the resurrection? Because that wasn't good enough. Because what God wants is a relationship with every single person. God created us. God loves us. God knows us deeper than we know ourselves. And even though we know our flaws and God knows our flaws, he doesn't care about the flaws because Jesus has made the way open. And the resurrection demonstrates that Jesus didn't want to just go straight to heaven. He could have. But instead, the resurrection demonstrated that he still cared for his disciples. He still met with them. And there was this 40-day time period where he kept appearing to his disciples and, and preparing them for what would be next. Because at the end of that 40 days, Jesus ascends to heaven. And he sits down on the throne at the right hand of God. And so God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are together. But Jesus told his disciples, he gave them a promise on the last night. He told his disciples, I go to heaven so that the Father will send the Holy Spirit to you. And you will be better off with the Holy Spirit than you are with me being physically with you. And I'm certain the disciples thought he was crazy. They must have thought he was lying. But the resurrection proves that that's true that God wants a relationship with us. And that's why we're starting this series today called Invisible God. 
Because how can we have a relationship with a God we can't see? How do we connect with God? Because it's one thing to know God intellectually, to say we understand his death, we understand his resurrection, we understand the ascension, we understand that he sent the Holy Spirit. But how do we know that in our hearts? How do we have a relationship with him? How do we connect with God at a deeper level that is beyond what we currently experience? Because that's what God is inviting us into. That's what God is calling us into, is a deeper relationship. And when we step into that deeper relationship, we get to know the ways that God has made us, the way that God has prepared us, the way God has called us to be his followers. And we get to learn the things, the fact that God is not done with this world yet, that the only reason Jesus hasn't returned is that we still have work to do. And we get to find the joy and the fulfillment and the purpose of walking in a relationship with him. And so I want to take us to one last passage of scripture. On the evening, only hours before Jesus was arrested, John records this big kind of closing message that Jesus gives to his disciples. And Jesus knows they're about to scatter. He knows they're about to doubt. And so he's trying to prepare them for what is next. And Jesus tells his disciples this. He says, yes, I am the vine and you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I remain in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This is an image of relational connection of us being a branch connected to the vine, connected to the source of life, so that we are able to do what God has called us to do. When Jesus told his disciples this, he was telling them, you have to remain connected to me, knowing that he was about to be killed and his disciples would doubt everything and they would scatter. But this is what Jesus was inviting his disciples into, and this is what he's inviting us into today. Jesus is inviting us to put our trust in him so that we get to experience the fulfillment of knowing our creator and discovering our purpose. The resurrection isn't just something that happened 2,000 years ago. The resurrection happens on a daily basis as we step into a deeper relationship with God and death's power over us and sin's power over us gets abolished and disappeared by the presence of God's love and his connection with us. That is what God is inviting us into. And we take one Sunday a year that we we focus in on this at Easter, but the resurrection happens in us every single time that we choose to step deeper in our walk with God. And so maybe you're here, and you're here because family brought you. And you're like, I don't know what I think about all this. This is, you know, maybe this is good for the person you're sitting next to. You're thinking, this isn't for me. Well, I want to just encourage you, this is for you the joy and the fulfillment and the love of God. The love of God for you will never change. He loves you more than you know already. But I want to invite you into putting your trust in Jesus so that you can experience that love and know it. Because God already loves you, but we sometimes don't know it. We sometimes struggle. Even those of us who have followed Jesus for years, we sometimes struggle to understand that God loves us so deeply. And the resurrection proves that love. And so I'm going to invite the band to come back up and they're going to lead us in one more song uh, called Who You Say I Am. And I want to invite you, uh, I think Alistair's going to ask the band to ask you guys to stand, but I want you to reflect on the lyrics of this song, of what we're going to sing together. Because this song is a declaration of saying that we want to be who God says we are. This is an invitation to, for our trust and our identity to be based on who God says we are 
rather than who we think we are. Because who God says we are is infinitely better and larger and deeper than what we think we are. So I want to invite you to stand and sing and reflect on the lyrics as the band leads us. This is what God is inviting us into. This is what Jesus is inviting us to because he rose from the grave. For us to be defined not by who we say we are and not what our flaws and our faults say we are, but for us to be defined by who God says we are. The words we sung are true, that who the Son sets free is free indeed. And so if you're here and you're at that point where you're saying, I need to make this choice to put my trust in Jesus, that's all there is to it is just a choice, a prayer to say, Lord, I want to put my trust in you. And so if you're at that point, I want to invite you to pray along with me. And I'm not going to ask you to put up your hands or anything like that. But just take a moment. And even for those of us who, know, who would say we understand this identity, that we've stepped into this, we've experienced the fulfillment of it, would you just close your eyes and would you pray with me? Lord, you are so amazing. Your love for us is overwhelming and we can't comprehend it. But Lord, we choose today to put our trust in you. That we know that you want to take our flaws, our faults, our sin, anything that separates us from you. And Lord, we know that you want to take that away. That the ground at the foot of the cross was level. We all come before you as equals. And we all come before you as people who you have created who pe- people that you love dearly. And so, Lord, we put our trust in you. And for anyone who's said that for the first time right now, heaven is cheering for you in this moment. Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you that you are alive and vibrant and that you call us deeper into a walk with you. Amen. If you've maybe made that choice today, you've got a card on your way and a Connect card, or you can grab one at the boxes by the auditorium doors, would you let us know? Because we want to pray for you, and we want to give you some resources to help you on, you know, take these first steps in your walk with God. But one of the first steps I want to invite you to is I want to invite you to come back next week. Because next week we're digging into this question of saying, how were the disciples supposed to remain with Jesus when Jesus was no longer visible? And how do we remain in Jesus? How do we be like those branches connected to the vine? How do we remain connected to Christ when Jesus is no longer visible? And that's what we're going to dive into over the next two weeks. And I want to invite you to be here for that. But folks, I hope you have an amazing, a happy Easter. And I hope to see you next Sunday. Have a great week. We hope this message helped you to take the next step in your faith journey. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 11 a.m. You can find out more about us by going to mygrandvalley.ca.